welcome to this podcast and videocast. I'm Silky Carlo, the director of Big Brother Watch. Big Brother Watch is a UK civil liberties campaign group fighting for a free future. We're a fiercely independent, non-partisan and non-profit group who work to roll back the surveillance state, defend free speech and protect rights at a time of huge change. Our work relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties in the UK. If you can support us, please do visit bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate to support this podcast and our work. I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin from Nepal and Evelyn from the Undercover Research Group. And today we're going to be talking about the remarkable changes that there have been to policing in the UK with the use of the new emergency powers. Um, Kevin and Evelyn have been doing an absolutely fantastic job of um, really acting as watchdogs on what the police have been doing and how they've been using their powers um, in in the current crisis and have a blog Uh, which I would encourage everyone to have a look at, which is called Policing the Corona State, which is updated every single day with coverage of what the police have been up to and how they've been using emergency powers, uh, dispersing groups, uh, sometimes targeting individuals, all sorts. um, uh, And that's the kind of stuff that we're going to talk about today. Um, And both Kevin and Evelyn have a long history of fantastic work in this area. Um, So Kevin, can you briefly introduce yourself first of all, please? Yeah, so um, my job is uh, as the coordinator for the Network for Police Monitoring, NetPol, which I've been doing for the last five years. Um, I was one of the founders of NetPol back in 2009. Um, and for 25 years, from from the early 90s up until 2015, I was involved in a local police monitoring and racial harassment monitoring group in East London called the New Monitoring Project. And what NetPol does prom- primarily is monitor uh, two aspects of public order policing. One is the policing protests and assemblies, and the other is the uh, public order policing of local communities. So particularly stuff around stop and search. Uh, which was the kind of the, the the way in that I got involved in Netpol back in in two thousand and nine. Great, and you've been working with Evelyn on keeping an eye on policing in the UK over the past uh, couple of months, in particular. Um, Evelyn, I, I, it's great to meet you for the first time, by the way, on this Zoom call. I've been following your work with the un, uh, Undercover Research Group for for some time. Uh, can you explain your work and your role and how you came into this? Um, I'm one of the founders of the Undercover Research Group, which basically looks at um, historical spying of activist groups, um, known sort of as the spy cop scandal, which ca- first came to light when activists themselves found out they'd been infiltrated by Mark Kennedy. And more people found out that things had happened in their groups and the undercover research group has been set up to sort of collect that knowledge and that um, uh, research tactics and ever since and since the uh, there is a public inquiry into undercover policing uh, we've been building a database of tactics and facts about these undercover uh, officers and also about 
the units they were part of to find out how how they were authorized and how and who were involved in that and what we have found out is that there is a direct line between the thinking behind this but also in person in staff uh, between those units that spied on activist groups and the people who set up prevent and the people who are currently uh, working uh, on the database of domestic extremists so that's where our work touches and overlaps and that's how we've come to to work together on this and for the public inquiry that has been going on for like five years and was finally going to start uh, it's its first public hearings in a fortnight, which of course now has been delayed by the Corona crisis as well. I was looking into infiltration of the Black Power movement of the anti-apartheid movies back 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 in the in the 60s and 70s, and when the current crisis came up, I felt I had to do something more relevant today, which I don't say the other work isn't. <laughs> But it suddenly felt like very far away. So that's why how we came with the idea to set up this blog. Mm. And it's such important work. Um, the, the spy cops scandal in particular is, is, has to be one of the, the the most egregious examples of of British policing in, in in modern times. So for those of us who are used to looking at um, examples of of bad or dangerous policing in this country. Um, it, it might be that some of what we've seen in this particularly extraordinary period of, of policing, uh, for example, police acting outside of the law or being heavy handed or lacking common sense, um, might not be a huge surprise to those of us that are used to working in this area. But now has come to enormous public consciousness and you have the likes of ex-Supreme Court judges saying that we risk entering a police state. What do you think about those comments and how realistic do you think that risk is? Or do you think it's just that people are now seeing a side to policing or feeling affected by policing in a way that <clears throat> they previously didn't? Well, shall I, shall I comment first on this? Um, because, I mean, I, I think that the, to a certain extent, the idea that we're living in a police state is um, kind of ignores that there were genuine issues that are around policing that have been in, have been around for decades i think what was particular i mean if you cast a mind back to the early part of when the when the lockdown was first introduced um there was it, it seems like an age ago now but it, i mean it's important to remember that the prime, prime minister and the government were actually really reluctant to 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 go into this they were dragged into implementing some form of um lockdown arrangements because by by the public um, but they started from a position, and certainly Boris Johnson articulated this, of saying, well, we understand that this is an enormous problem, um, and essentially we think that we don't think that you're going to be able to to deal with it. So Boris Johnson started was banging on about the, you know, the inalienable rights of people to be able to go to the pub. And I think that was a massive misreading of where public opinion was at that stage. But what it lent to, lent itself to, was uh, uh, the police essentially adopting a position where they thought the government wanted them to go in really hard and impose um, uh, the powers that they had, particularly at the beginning, in a really, really aggressive way in order to be able to send a message that the government didn't think the public could deal with this, but, if, but the, the state was ready to be able to respond in a, in a very robust way. 
Um, and that's why you saw all those fines at the, in the first week being issued by forces like Lancashire. Right? It was about sending a message. And it was entirely the wrong approach because there was genuine public support for the need for some form of public health regulations. But the police's approach of, of essentially treating the whole thing as though it was a public order matter. Um, at a time when people were genuinely scared about their themselves and their, their families and whether people were um, people they, who, who had underlying health conditions were going to survive was a, a missed opportunity to be able to build some form of genuine consensus about um, uh, how you how we collectively make sure that people didn't do things that that might um, uh, negatively impact on the on that on the need to protect people from from the spread of a disease and instead we had you know snitch hotlines being set up encouraging people to ring up the police and, and report on their neighbors um, we had the use of of the police powers in a way that was entirely arbitrary um, and for, for us certainly in terms of the background of the work that we've done before that was entirely predictable because every time there's been the introduction of a new power that's intended to be used in a public order way, it's been abused. I mean, we can point to almost every piece of legislation, particularly ones that have been used against protesters but and local communities going back for decades, where whatever the intentions may have been, those powers were already um, was always used in a far more excessive way. And I, I mean, I think that um, it's it's taken. Well, partly the, the publicity, I mean, it was, you know, myself and Evelyn, the work that we've done has been important that trying to, was a recognition that we could see that this was going to happen. But it's also taken a public backlash where the police have just suddenly realised we got this wrong. We don't have the support of the public on this. Um, and I think that that has also been something which has been gradually fed back into the government as well. Do you think they really do realise that they overstepped? I mean, I completely agree that the level of, backlash towards the police has been, despite a history of um, abuses of power, has really been quite un unprecedented, particularly to have from uh, different quarters of society who don't normally criticise the police, who I guess feel that these powers actually now affect them as well as everyone else, and have been a bit more worried about the over-policing. Do you think there, there has been a um, any kind of ag acknowledgement of that? And do you think there's any, um, Evelyn, I wonder what you think about this. Do, do you think there, there is now any wider acknowledgement that for the police to abandon the rule of law is a dangerous thing? Um, yes, yes, I think I, I wanted to take one step back because um, one of the things that happened, of course, was that there was a, a difference between the guidance that the government sent out and the actual laws that the police had to upheld. And in the first weeks, there was a continuing sort of discrepancy between those two, where the police were thinking they were they were you know doing the right thing and doing what the government told them, but they had no right. There was no law uh, that they were upholding. So that that gave a lot of sort of complications and um, um, fines that have been uh, that have been given that are now being ruled unlawful. Um, having said that, there's of course a continue 
a continuum in the sense that what our impression is and what we see in other countries as well is that people who are always at the far end uh, of of more more policing more stop and search uh black people uh we've we have the impression that they are more of you know they're being controlled more often and there's there's many examples of that however there's no statistics about that yet um, yeah, it was in- only a few days ago in fact kevin and i were just talking about this this morning uh, just a few days ago the the latest statistics on the fixed penalty notices show it, in particular almost um the, the overrepresentation of asian people receiving fixed penalty notices particularly stands out um it, it's really really significant yeah, we had an ent- uh, um, one of our things in in our in yesterday's entry is uh, statistics from the states. Where it says that four out of every five people who are uh, stopped and searched are are Bain people, are black people, basically. We don't know. Well, it would be good to look into statistics in the UK to see if that is true. If our impression. Uh, can be backed up by statistics. Um, I do think, yes, that more, many more people are now at the receiving end of policing that they consider unfair for one reason or the other, and that there is a larger, like you, like you said, a larger realization of how policing can go wrong. While, as Kevin says, there is a large, you know, like there's a willingness to oblige to the rule to the rules and to stay safe um and it's now it's like you have to you know it's like instead of it being a, a joint public health effort it's now you have to feel guilty with whatever you do and of course policing the parks for instance which has been a big issue over the last few weeks and it will be again now the weather is getting better again uh, people don't seem to realize that people that people who are who use parks to be outside don't have a place of their don't have a garden or a place to be outside otherwise mm-hmm. um, of course there is a, a class difference and um, societal differences between people who complain about that and people who need those parks yeah absolutely and so just in, in case anyone's not aware um what we're talking about here the discrepancy between the um, guidance that was issued by the government and the laws that were put in place um, also by the government without any parliamentary scrutiny um, they they were different and so for example uh, but but then the, the guidance was enforced quite zealously by many police forces so for example um, police were um, trying to enforce guidance like you can only exercise once a day or you can't drive your car five minutes away somewhere more quiet secluded to walk your dog or exercise uh, even trying to police types of exercise so we had examples of people being um, reprimanded by police for doing yoga because it's not proper exercise uh, even in my local park actually there were police um, shouting at people who were doing strength exercises saying keep moving keep moving unless you're running you know you need to leave um, and all this kind of stuff, let alone um, 
you know, there was because there was this guidance around you, sh you should only go out to um, for, for shopping if it's for basic necessities. As you had some police officers, for example, um, searching people's bags or uh, I had a, an example of one person who was fined because she had gone out to buy a bottle of wine um, and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think what's been quite worrying is now that these embarrassing examples have come to light and more guidance has been issued by police chiefs, uh, the CPS, and a lot of that guidance was quite good. It was certainly much clearer, it, you know, reflecting what the law actually does say, regardless of whether you agree with it or not. There were some um, senior police figures who said, no, we prefer the guidance. Did that shock you guys as much as it <laughs> shocked me? I'm, I'm not sure it necessarily did because, um, as I said before, although, I mean, primarily the lockdown has been about, it's not even really been about trying to stop the spread of disease, it's about trying to slow it, right? Um, but the police have, have treated it as, in absolute terms, as if you do this, if you do yoga in the park, if you go out and buy a bottle of wine, you're killing people, right? Yeah. And, and that's always been nonsense, particularly at a time when, you know, significant numbers of people have still had to go out to work. They've been policing the people who are, by and large, at home for most of the day and are going out for relatively short spaces of time. Why? Because it's, e it's easier to do that than to have to deal with the more complicated issue about, about the fact that there are companies allowing people who are to go to work who definitely not physically distancing at all when they're at work when there's insufficient facilities to make sure that they stay healthy um it's been the easy option and i think one of the interesting things about the forces that have decided to be more um aggressive if you like in relation to to this is uh to, to the to the use of these powers is that they have been rural forces so there's been a real kind of um, we don't want outsiders in, inside our coming into our areas. Now I understand that there are arguments in some places, particularly in places like Cornwall, where you know their health services are are already extremely limited. It's very good distances for people to be able to travel if they're sick. But um, the level of um, almost glee that the, the police entered into in, in relation to the use of those powers was about this is an opportunity for us to be able to impose controls. And the reason why that wasn't such a great shock is because that is the pattern of public order policing as well. So the interesting thing about Dorset, for instance, which is, I'm sure other people have seen, has constantly you know, articulated the idea that it's going to ignore public guidance and be much tougher because it needs to protect people coming into its county, is that Dorset is also has the highest disproportion of stop and searches of black people before the current the, the lockdown ever happened the 20 you're 25 times more likely to be stopped in dorset if you're black than if you're white despite the pop the black population in dorset being absolutely tiny right? um and you can draw conclusions from from that sort of response that sort of do you belong in this area do you belong in our county was an attitude that 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 was definitely coming out from them and from north yorkshire and a few others Lancashire Police um, adopted a particularly aggressive response to, uh, to, to lockdown measures at the beginning, um, which came as absolutely no shock to all the protesters that I know from Lancashire have been 
opposing fracking in that county because they've seen the, the way that the public order policing in, in Lancashire is conducted. Um, the Metropolitan Police has a long history of, of being the one force that, that massively uh, dominates the statistics on stop and search. In the last month, there's been a 22% increase in the use of stop and search, despite the fact that huge numbers of the population are mainly stuck indoors. Why is that? That's because they because this is the way that they approach the control of people, the control of, of populations, the control of the way people go about their business. And I still, it comes back, back to me, is because people, they don't trust, they essentially see it, all of us as being, as, as being potential criminals, as people who are potentially breaking the law, um, rather than people who are trying their best in really difficult circumstances to cope and look out for each other and so on. Um, even and I were talking uh, th th this morning, sharing some stuff about how policing of pandemics um, is the wrong approach, and and, and particularly the, uh, the 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 police response to HIV, the HIV pandemic. That the, the response of criminalising people wasn't the wasn't the solution that stopped the spread of that disease, and the police's involvement in this has been, from my view, has been overwhelmingly negative in in terms of their contribution to ensuring that, that um, the spread of, dis of the disease has been slowed. I, I, I think that there have been more important things that they could have been doing um, and concentrating their resources on, in particular, the massive increase in domestic violence, but also, you know, there, there have been other, crime has not stopped because most people have been indoors, but a lot of it has been robberies from, from premises and so on. Um, what has been significant, I'm sure Evelyn would agree with this, is that, the people that have been following some of the, the the stuff that we've been doing are not our traditional audiences. You know, they are definitely people who've who've who probably would have been quite scathing of some of the stuff we said about the police, you know, six months ago, and have had um, uh, I wouldn't quite call it a road to Damascus conversion, but certainly have 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 realised that that in a state of exception, which is what we're, we've got now. Um, it, it's not just going to happen to other people. It potentially can happen to you too. And that's something that, um, that hopefully will be educational for people. I mean, I, I'm not sure that necessarily it will be, but I, I hope that it will be. Now to go back to your question, like uh, that some police chiefs now say the guidance, we, we, we don't want the law, we'd rather have the guidance. I think it's, it's more precise to say that there have been police chiefs that said this guidance is just getting too complicated. There's now so many examples in the guidance of what you can and what you can't do that it is not policeable. So they, you know, they kind of warned saying we can't do this. If you, it would be good if they would take uh, if they would realize that this crisis is not about policing, that that is in fact what they are saying, or that is what it should lead to, that this entire crisis is not about policing people off the streets, but it should be a joint effort uh, to take care of each other. And it's a public health problem rather than anything else. And I, I'm sincerely hoping that people who say we can't police this guidance because it's too complicated that they take a step further and say yeah well you know this is this is not what it is about and like kevin said 
this um, friends of ours are involved in the in construction site campaign you know people many not non-essential construction site have not even been shut all this time while people are there without any any security and any social distancing being possible at all the police is not policing that there's uh, again you come back to what is easy for the police and what is what is uh, you know it's it's far too complicated and not what the government wants to go onto a construction site of uh, of a big corporate builder and and send people home because they're too close to each other which is in fact what you could expect them to do mm. and uh, and I think that is part of what makes uh, some especially under the new regulations um, it, they're difficult to enforce both because I think previously it was relatively simple now it is incredibly complex but also it kind of lacks common sense uh, I would argue and so it's difficult for both for individuals to I think closely abide by the new rules um, to, to be in that kind of state of cognitive distance just knowing that it kind of you're going out to work on a construction site um, but then you know you and you're surrounded by people but then you're only allowed to see one parent outdoors at a time um, you know it just doesn't doesn't make sense but it is also impossible to police isn't it um, <clears throat> the new rules so the new rules essentially being that we're now allowed outdoors not only for exercise but for emotional and mental well-being um, and we can meet one person from one other household at a time outdoors. That's essentially it, right? Um, how do you think, we still have, we're just in the first few days of this, so we've no idea how this is gonna play out. Um, can I encourage you to make a prediction? <laughs> how do you think this will be pleased? Well, I can, I can give an example. I live in the Netherlands, as you might hear. Um, here the advice is to when you are outside, even with your, with your household, with your family, keep distance because the police can't see whether you're from the same household or not. So this is sort of, it sort of shows that it's getting crazier and crazier if you want to stick to rules that are impossible to police. And then there is this other thing that there's you know, like we still don't know what really causes contamination. And there's more and more evidence now that being outside is the best thing to do. That, you know, like if you are in in school, in a contained, you know, or in a care home where there's not enough ventilation, that's where people get contaminated because the micro whatever bubbles stay in the air for much longer. So that that if that um, if that is going to be more common knowledge, it's going to be even harder to police outdoor spaces. I'm afraid. I think the other thing is that um, for just take this thing about about the need to be able to go out for for sort of mental well emotional and mental uh, mental well being. Let's be absolutely honest. Nobody really needed the, the the government to tell them that that was important. You talk to people; they 
people said, I need to go out and I need to get out of the house for a couple of hours. It wasn't just about keeping fit. It was about keeping sane. That's always been, that's the conversations I've had with, with friends of mine all the time over the last six or seven weeks. It was something that was entirely logical. Um, and so the idea that we needed somebody to be able to tell us that suddenly this was okay was was in some ways it's just nonsense. That's part of the part of the problem. They've tried to um, to clarify the uh, to guide the guidance which is intended to be for the public, and the police have taken it as being guidance which is intended for them in the way that they approach their policing. I, I think, think that's we, true, but the, the the only thing I do worry about on that is that the, the where the initial lockdown was so rigid and the kind of threats of policing were so rigid as well i do know some people who either have not well who haven't let their children out for example and i think that's because the the level of fear is so high um and the expectation that this we were going into this very rigid uh kind of policing environment and risk environment as well that while some people will just always kind of make up their own minds there are some people who will then kind of over self police and i guess that's been that's also shown in some of the problems now faced with lifting the lockdown is that there are that people are, some people can't really make sense of that shift I mean, I accept that, and I think I mean I, I don't want to overstate that point, but 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 I think it is important that that actually much of what the vast majority of the public have, have done has been is about is, has been about exercising their own common sense. Yeah. Right? So people have been afraid. There's no question of that. And I, I go back to what I said before. That in part was because um, so much of about the approach to to dealing with public health issues is about trust. And if your approach is to go in. And, and articulate your messaging about a crackdown, then what tends to happen is that people don't trust the trust the advice. They, they then decide that maybe things are worse or um, they need to be more careful. And of course, that's because they're, they we're talking about their loved ones. I mean, I think the way that it will go in terms of the police's response, because I think there is a recognition that they're not in a position to be able to um, uh, follow every every aspect of this or even make the kind of decisions that need to be made in anything other than an arbitrary way if they follow the current guidelines is that is the indications that we've seen from some of the reporting about information from the home office so the home office is going to want the police to basically concentrate on large gatherings um, and that doesn't necessarily mean large numbers of people gathering on Brighton Beach it's going to be you know some of the stuff we saw over this weekend in terms of targeting of of house parties or raves or that sort of thing um, and I still think that those are an exception at the moment that the largest the largest gatherings are people at uh, people who gather together at work but those are not going to be the, the issues that we really focus upon because this is about still about seeing trying to find the the cr criminal element out there the the, the so-called COVID idiots and 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 banging them over the head with uh, with with public order legislation so um but i think that's probably where it's going to go over the over the immediate time that gradually people will go out people i think will still exercise a greater degree of common sense but the policing will focus far more on larger gatherings with the exception of those parts of the country where they've decided that they're going to operate their own their own interpretation of these rules um the ones that we've already talked about what is the 
what either worst or most absurd example of policing in the UK that you've seen in the last in the last couple of months you really are the best people to ask this question because you've catalogued just about every single <laughs> documented incident of bad policing uh, it's it's a stiff competition but which 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 do you think is the worst oh god put us on the spot um Evelyn, <laughs> Evelyn you go first oh just, that's me think back, <laughs> <laughs> think back on some of the many examples this is like the policing raspberry awards <laughs> we should send out some trophies Sorry, I missed um, that. What do you think is the worst, the worst example? Or no, the, no, 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 I, 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 the example. Now, I think um, sort of the Easter egg discussion was kind of, you know, where it has gotten to, like what is essential shopping and are Easter eggs essential, essential shopping? And then, you know, that got up to a level that sort of shows you how idiots the entire discussion is and the enforcement? Um, I would probably say that the, the although there are some particularly sort of idiotic examples, I mean, you, you mentioned the one about people doing yoga in the park and there's been other examples of, um, of police going and shouting at people sitting on a park bench on their own when they're clearly, there is no question there being any kind of uh, public order, sorry, so public health um, justification for that kind of action wearing um, the wrong kind of clothes trousers to oh, that someone who yeah. was wearing <laughs> jeans and that was not supposed yeah. to be fit for exercising that's yeah, that was one. that sorry i'm glad you i've completely forgotten about that that was crazy <laughs> but so, to a certain extent the answer is probably the decision of the police forces to issue fines like confetti in the first week mm. um that's probably the, the the maddest thing that they did partly because um, you know, it, it's looking increasingly likely there's going to be some form of legal challenge to the issuing of those fines. Mm. Uh, Silky, as you, obviously you know very well. Um, and if that happens, I think that many of the issues of those fines are going to be very difficult to justify, because I yeah. think it was entirely about sending a message rather than anything to do with any genuine form of disorder. And even scores of unlawful prosecutions, which um, and yeah, again, some of this hasn't surprised me, but I, I have been really quite surprised to see uh, not only the, the police charge people wrongly and under laws that kind of more or less don't exist, you know, just a complete misinterpretation of the emergency powers. But then for that to go through the CPS and magistrates as well, that's been really, really worrying. But then uh, s some of what's happened has just been like a different level of absurd. And um, some of my favorite examples are the, are the ones where individual officers, uh, although well-intended, you know, have really taken it upon themselves to kind of spread the, the lockdown message. And there was an example from Derbyshire police in the first couple of days where a police officer just by himself drove, drove the car, drove his car down a residential street that was completely quiet and empty and it was dark and started blaring the sirens and shouting out on a loud hailer we need to be corona stay inside stay inside and i guess it's kind of the, the visibility of this uh hopefully shows people um that there has been at, at times a kind of is it fair to say neuroticism? There's been a bit of, of a kind of uh, uh, through the lens of policing, you know, that we need to 
that we can police the pandemic away like magic and you know it, it's been a, a kind of certain kind of craziness mm. and it's i guess the one positive maybe is that this is now that how easy it is i mean in, in all of our areas of work we often look at the at the ways in which um policing oversteps the boundaries of the law and i guess i i hope now that that's been visible on a on a very very mass public scale i think it's that's true but i think the 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 interesting as well as those people for whom this has been a, a revelationary uh, experience over the last seven weeks there have been an awful lot of people eye rolling and saying well finally you've got it so the failures of the of the courts i mean not, you're quite right i mean not only the police bringing those charges but the cps pursuing them the courts allowing them people to be convicted on them is astonishing but it's mm. a real reflection of just how bad the the criminal justice system has got in terms of being able to defend people's rights you know if you if you don't have a solicitor in those circumstances then you then there's a real chance that you'll end up being wrongly convicted on a relatively minor offence in a in a magistrate's court. And that, oh, but worse I'm, still, even some of these people did. Uh, the the teenager in Oxford who was charged under Welsh emergency powers for visiting his vulnerable mum had a solicitor, and we exactly initially yeah we we initially went to the solicitor's firm. You can look it up and said you know very gently and privately said you might want to have another look at this case because we've seen it and it's completely wrong and very very troubling kind of disregard for that young boy's life by just completely ignoring us and saying no we, we don't want to talk about it and of course then that's been that you know, the only way that there's been remedial action there is through press coverage but that's that that is quite alarming but it's the, one of the reasons why when we say to protesters one of the five key messages that we put across to uh, protesters is don't use a duty solicitor mm. make sure you have a solicitor who knows what they're talking about mm -hmm. that's not because uh, of, of the unusual times we're in now but that's always been the case that that people are poorly served often by the representation that they get and if they mm. need to uh, to make sure that they they have got representation in circumstances where things are different from the you know the run of the mill a lot of cases are deal with Friday night drunks and so on, that you need to have somebody who knows what they're doing. And that clearly hasn't been the case in some of these other cases. Mm. As I said, I think the um, the disproportionality issue that, that Evelyn touched on earlier is is going to be something which I think is going to be really fascinating to see in those figures when those figures begin to emerge. I mean, it, there is also some particular indications already that it's been young people who've been targeted far more. Um, although it's not necessarily young people who are far more likely to be out. Um, and that's about some of the prejudices that, and the biases that were already there. But I think the racial profiling of some of this will become something that becomes more evident because it is something that we have to go back to and talk about again and again in the other work we were, we've had to do over the last, you know, last decade or so. Um, one of the difficulties about the figures that, that did come out that Evelyn mentioned is, of course, that they're national figures. and um black and minority communities are concentrated in a relatively small number of areas in you know major cities particularly london i mean the black half of the black british populations in london and we really need to know what's going on in those areas to, to be able to find this out and i think it was a little bit disingenuous of the national police chiefs council to kind of brush away oh this is in keeping with the with the national the population um uh, demographics of these different communities that's not simply not not true 
Um, and I think that's something that will be useful, important for us to, to, to look at. And it has been an issue that I touched on before about, and this is much more about later on, as the, as the lockdown begins to ease, what happens next? Um, and about whether that kind of targeting and profiling becomes even more of an issue. And I'm thinking in particular about the powers to be able to detain somebody if they're perceived to be sick in order to be able to take them away for testing, because that is something that I think is likely to become more of, more of an issue over the next three or four months. Yeah, let's talk about that, because um, we, we, we're, we're almost, it's almost like in this initial kind of panic phase, um, we've got the regulations which are changing uh, every few weeks and, and so on. But under the Coronavirus Act, there are some very, very long lasting powers in there that confer huge, enormous, unprecedented powers on the police. For example, to detain people who are suspected of being infectious um, in unidentified quarantine uh, locations potentially um, and, and to disperse gatherings as well. One, one of the um, concerns that we raised when this was when this was rushed through Parliament in three days is that whereas under other emergency laws um, there's been a lot of talk about what a lot of questions raised about why wasn't the Civil Contingencies Act used. Um, the Civil Contingencies Act for example still offers the safeguard that you can't use emergency laws to prevent strikes and industrial action. That safeguard doesn't exist under the Coronavirus Act. So really in extremis, you, it, it could be used to completely take away protest rights and gives very arbitrary powers to the police to, to detain people if, if abused, and which I, I do think um, is a real risk. And, um, we we were just we were just talking just before this call about how the what the political shift is going to be like after this, um, and in some ways, you know everything's up for up for grabs. We're already seeing these conversations emerge about um, radical environmental um, policies and you know how we might enter a kind of new politics and, and try to shape a new society, which will mean um, activism as well. How do you think these worlds are going to collide of police who have been empowered with, um, with extraordinary new emergency powers, a general kind of sense of risk and panic, and also um, a completely new political environment and maybe a, a, a completely new um, kind of breed of activism and, 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 and desire and appetite for social and political change? Well, to start with, that new world starts today. The emergency powers that the police has been given, have been given, um, they need to be evaluated every three weeks in Parliament, and that has not happened one time yet. And that is, in and of itself, a danger to democracy, if you wish. You know, like if if the, these powers are not being scrutinised, or not at this point in time, what's going to happen in the next two years? You know, like uh, that is. It, I'm amazed that there's not, not more protest from all kinds of people about that. 
Yeah, so the, the, the regulations have to be assessed as to whether they're still, the lockdown regulations have to be assessed as to whether they're still necessary and proportionate every three weeks. But we know nothing about that kind of evaluation. Nothing's given to Parliament, uh, nothing given to the public. Is it happening at all, you wonder? Mm. I don't think it does. And then the other side of it is the alarming, uh, increasing alarming direction of, of seeing this as being a, a war on the pandemic. And there's talk about biosecurity and the involvement of the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, uh, officials from there in, in doing this COVID alert system. Um, part, I think that there's definitely overlaps there, because if you're starting to see if the approach is about increasingly around biosecurity and seeing looking for potential threats to, the, to that biosecurity then the same level of paranoia that we've seen from those people who are responsible for for, for surveillance on alleged domestic extremists for instance um, for drawing up the kind of advice that pretty much brings every kind of social movement from CND to Extinction Rebellion to all sorts of different people on into sort of guidance notes that were it seems like a decade ago now, but it was only in January that this was being talked about. Um, coupled with, uh, if that's the kind of messaging that the government is putting out, potentially the same kind of um, fears that drove people to ring up and report their neighbours for breaking social distancing, becoming people ringing up and reporting people they think may be infected still. You know, people are already talking about about the prospects of a second wave and worrying about that. If it becomes again about seeing either those people who may be sick as being a threat or those people who are talking about the needs to change the political discourse in reliance on what's happened as being a threat, um, then that's, that's basically, basically a green light for, for not only maintaining the powers that are there, but using them in a far more sort of oppressive and, um, and potentially arbitrary way. Um, so on the one hand, increasing the level of surveillance on anybody who is criticizing the government's approach to the pandemic. And on the other hand, focusing in particular on those communities where there may be perceived to be a, an increased likelihood that people may still carry the infection. So, you know, those places, those communities where there's a high incidence of frontline workers, We've already seen an increasing level of, of, of rate, uh, race hate crimes against the Chinese community or people perceived to be part of the Chinese community. Um, those two overlapping strands, I think, are really worrying. And of course, we've got another, what is it, 17 months of this to go before the legislation um, uh, is supposed to end. And I, th I mean, I think the, the, that that kind of approach, uh, that biosecurity approach is the thing that really worries me because I think it is exactly the kind of um, it, it it stirs echoes and memories of what happened after 9-11 and after after the 7-7 the bombing in 2005, that kind of increasingly paranoid atmosphere that w was genuinely scary for an awful lot of people, um, particularly those people who were critical of it. Mm. Well, and I think the, uh, the example you mentioned earlier, uh, we talked about the, um, the AIDS epidemic and the HIV epidemic, uh, um, com the communities that were particularly um, infected by HIV were policed very strongly at the beginning as well and it took activism by people like from ACT UP and gay rights communities 
to to for years to make clear that policing them away, <laughs> policing them into the underground, or policing an epidemic like that in general is not the way the way to deal with 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 illness. It's a public health thing, and it you need to the government need to be open and needs to be needs to. Uh, you know, share statistics and share their findings and all of, and the pharmaceutical industry has to, yeah, all the things that you kind of see happening again now, you know, um, demands that we have to put forward. We can, maybe we should go back to, to ACT UP and the um, gay rights community to learn some lessons from there. I also just want to add one other point, which is that, um, uh, Evelyn's right. It's, it was activism. It was it was people who were perceived to be at the margins at those at that particular moment, who pushed for changes in the in the the approach that gov government adopted, and definitely are not at the margins anymore. They were seen to have been to have been right. One of the interesting. Th I had a conversation yesterday where somebody said to me, "Well, what's Netpol's priorities for the coming year?" And I said, "I don't know what the priorities are for the coming month. The way things are at the moment, we are going to have to be." constantly reacting to the things that are happening and we are going to have to be putting forward you know potentially new solutions as campaigners across the board to the new circumstances we find ourselves in and if at that in the course of that there is a perception that that is being seen as being um you know potentially some sort of extremist threat which is what has always been the case um, that is really alarming because that brings us back to the same level of intensive um, surveillance that we saw in the aftermath of the banking crisis. And it's the reason why we've been calling for the National Police Chiefs Council to um, abandon the domestic extremism label now. It needs to do it now rather than the point where the lockdown happens and those debates are beginning to start. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a completely uh, useless and meaningless and uh, term that that really def broadly defines political dissidents and has been used to instill fear and, and panic about uh, people who criticize, the, often people who criticize the government or don't fall within the confines of uh, what was deemed to be acceptable thought by those in power, which is a very strange place for any democracy to be. So all the more power to you in both your work. I will greatly look forward to Big Brother Watch uh, working with you during this period and seeing what comes next. I think you're absolutely right. There is going to be enormous political shifts after this, and there's been big policing shifts too. So this might be quite a challenging environment for activists, but I also love how you draw inspiration and lessons from um, activists that precede us. And um, you know, can, it's, it's never been more important, I think, than, than now and in the, in the coming months that there is a democratic swell and people have a say in what the kind of uh, realigned world looks like. And uh, I know you're gonna play a huge role in protecting people as they do that important work. So on behalf of everyone, thank you. And also thanks for joining me today. Thanks for listening to the Big Brother Watch podcast. Our work completely relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties. You can help make our work stronger by supporting us at bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate.